Hey, going to South by Southwest? I am. Come see a live Nerdist Writers panel with uh, Diane Ruggiero and some other great guests. Uh, Diane is on iZombie right now, so that should be a fun chat. Uh, on this Sunday, March 15th, South by Southwest at the Gaming Geek Stage at Palmer Event Center. It's Sunday at noon o'clock. Please come join me. I will be embarrassed if no one shows up. We're also doing a bunch of Thrilling Adventure Hour panels uh, on Saturday and Sunday. Check thrillingadventurehour.com for the where's and when's. Hope to see you there. And if I do, please say hello. Thank you. Bye. Now entering Nerdist.com. Hey everyone, this is Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I myself am a television writer, having written for such shows as Supernatural, Nickelodeon, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently working for the DreamWorks program Puss in Boots, which is available right now via Netflix. Uh, check it out. It's pretty fun. I am also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio uh, that is available as a podcast here on the Nerdist Network. For information about the Thrilling Adventure Hour, go to thrillingadventurehour.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Uh, this is it. All right. Thank you. We're good. Uh, guys, Jonathan Tropper is here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This is great. I appreciate you making time. Now, um, we do not get the opportunity on this program to talk to a lot of novelists, a lot of prose writers. And I have known you for, I think, probably 10 years as a prose writer. I think I read Plan B. Oh, yeah. Um, in my, that, must have been my late 20s. That came out in uh, two, uh, the Plan B came out in 2000. Okay, yeah. Yes. Um, and I really loved it. I mean, it, it was a book that I think spoke to a certain generation of people. Um, so I've known you as a novelist for, you know, these past 15 years uh, and was surprised to see your name pop up as the co-creator of Banshee. Yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and again, we'll talk about, you know, tones of things and what interests you about this, the different uh, types of writing. But what I'm really curious to hear about, just to kind of start us off, is uh, your process for each and how it's the same and how it's different. When you set out to write a novel, what does your process look like? Well, I think uh, where the process is the same, and, and the only place it's the same, is that uh, for both uh, screenwriting and novel writing, I don't start out with plot. Mm -hmm. um, I don't outline. I don't, I don't come up with a huge uh, plot point or premise. It, it always starts out for me with character. Mm -hmm. I start thinking about uh, the person or the people and who they are and what their story is and what they're going through. And that usually generates the plot for me, not always correctly. So there's a lot of rewriting. But once I have that, I usually just start writing um, as if I know where I'm going, uh -huh. uh, which I don't. And <laughs> on the novel side, what will happen is I'll get to about 40 or 50 pages and then realize now I have a lot of balls in the air. Now I have to actually sit down and have a plan. And that's when I'll start outlining the novel. Hmm. And because you know it takes me a while to write a novel, that will usually happen multiple times throughout the process where I'll make certain plans, I'll write another 75 pages and realize I don't like those plans anymore. Oh, wow. um, so, you know, it takes me roughly a year or so to write a book when, mm -hmm. I'm, when I'm really in the swing of even, things. Even that is very fast. Well, for, for I mean... Backtracking and then rewriting. Well, I, I had a great... I had a great groove where I wrote five novels in about 10 years. I published five novels mm -hmm. in about 10 years. I've slowed down considerably since then because I'm working on the show and, mm -hmm. and other things. But... Um, 
Uh, whereas on the, on the TV side, you really, on the screenwriting side, whether it's feature or TV, you really do have to outline much more precisely. And so for me, once I have the general idea of who the character is and what their arc is, before I really dive into writing the script, what I'll do is I'll write the script without any of the dialogue, just as an outline. I'll literally write each scene and what's supposed to happen in that scene until okay. I have like a 30 or 40 page final draft outline. And then I just go back in and start mm-hmm. filling in all the scenes. Oh, wow. um, so it's a slightly different process there. Is that I'm curious about and I said we would talk about sort of how Banshee came to be. But is that how the pilot looked for you first? I mean, I know it was a different animal because you did create it with a uh, collaborator. Yes. Yeah, so, well, David and I, we wrote the pilot together, David Schickler, who was a novelist that I had admired for many mm-hmm. years. And we had talked about it for so long before we wrote it because we didn't write it till we sold it. And mm-hmm. But we spent so long talking about Banshee and talking about uh, the pilot and outlining the pilot that it was practically written uh, before we wrote it. So... Mm-hmm. We never really needed to go outline that because we, we knew beat by beat the entire wow. pilot. We already had the whole first season of the show worked out. So it was, uh, hmm. you know, then when we had to write the next nine episodes, that was sort of a big education for us as we had to learn how to really, you know, plot out a season. Um, but the pilot itself, uh, the original pilot, which we wrote for HBO, um, did have a really strong uh, literary vibe to it. Uh, how, how so? How was it different? Uh, it was just, you know, it was written by two novelists, and uh, it was really meant to be this kind of uh, tribute to noir and uh, and some of the Pulp Fiction stuff, and, and it had a real sort of kind of a somewhere between, uh, you know, Sergio, Sergio Leone and, and Raymond Chandler, like that kind of vibe. And then, you know, gradually when we moved over to Cinemax, we, we amped up the action component considerably mm-hmm. to serve uh, the Cinemax audience. But the original version of the show was sort of a much more brooding and quiet show with moments of real visceral violence, but um, not quite the show that that we do today. Right. That's really interesting. How did you guys, because uh, you are both New York-based writers. Right. Um, yeah. How did you guys come to, what was the context in which you even started talking about this piece? Uh, well, um, we had met um, initially, I believe, uh, another writer, James Fry, who uh, was pretty well known, uh, took us both out to lunch along with a few other writers. He He just knew a bunch of like sort of male... <laughs> bad boy writers, I guess, that he thought we should all get together and meet. We were all East Coast based and, and we all got together and had this really great lunch. And, you know, Dave and I stayed in touch after that. And uh, and then like a little while later, maybe a year or so after that, I told him, you know, I, I kind of have this. We, we found out we'd both tried to develop television before. And I told him, well, I've got this idea that's very different from anything I've tried. And I had read one of his novels called Sweet and Vicious, which uh, was very much along the lines of where I saw Banshee going. So I asked him if he wanted to help me create the show, and uh, he did. Yeah. Um, what was your experience in television before? None. This is uh, <laughs> Banshee's the first thing I ever did in TV. I had, um, but you had tried to develop. Up, I had tried. Yeah, I had worked with some producers. I had I had pitched one or two other shows to HBO that were much more in what was my perceived brand, uh, which is what? which is more like the novels I write. These sort of very contemporary. Um, sort of uh, contemporary literary fiction about, you know, men fucking up their lives and, and, you know, nothing violent, nothing, you know, very grounded sort of slightly comedic novels about uh, relationships and family and, and the suburbs and, you know, things like that. And um, I had, I had pitched a few things to HBO, which I'd like to think were just ahead of their time because some of the stuff that's come out since is very similar, Hmm. Um, but was unable to sell any of that. And then I I decided, you know, there was this whole other side of me that, you know, was raised on eighties action movies and, and 
really loved all the genre stuff, and I decided that I would try to sell something like that. And uh, you know, David, who who was a huge fan of all the genre stuff, really uh, came on board. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then, so uh, you know, you say you guys talked about this for. Years, yeah, well, not years. Um, the initial germ of the idea had been with me for many years, ever since I'd read The Count of Monte Cristo, you know, back in mm-hmm. high school. But um, no, I think we spent about eight or nine months just brainstorming it, troubleshooting mm-hmm. it, talking it out, writing treatments. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, then when we really felt we had it in a good place, we, we went in, pitched Alan Ball first, got him on board. Okay. And, and then, let me just ask uh, from a business perspective. Right. What what were your connections to Hollywood? I mean, presumably you had a lit agent, but did you have? I had yeah, film I, agents I yeah, I did. I actually I had started um, I had started writing screenplays. Um, I'd get hired by uh, you know the way it started for me was uh, the studios began optioning my books, mm-hmm. so I got to know some producers and um, one producer in particular, Carla Hacken, who at the time was was actually. Uh, a vice president at Fox 2000 had told me that I should write screenplays and whenever I'm ready, you know, she'll give me my first job. And uh, I wrote a spec script first, uh, which nobody bought, but people began offering me jobs based mm-hmm. on the script. And uh, the, it was an adaptation of one of my earlier books and okay. nobody bought it. But, um, but that people kind of began. Gets around. Yeah. And then once they knew that I was a novelist who could also, you know, write screenplays. Um, so the first the first paying gig I got was actually to adapt uh the old play Harvey for um, uh, Fox 2000 um, into a, really? a contemporary uh, remake, which I wrote for them. And that kind of, you know, that they, that's still in play today. There are people trying to make that script today. Yeah. But, um, you know, that sort of got me into the industry. And then I began taking uh, screenwriting jobs. And, can we, let me interrupt. Can we yeah. uh, talk about adapting Harvey for a minute? Because that's uh, really interesting. I mean, it's, it is in many ways a, a timeless Play. Right, which which might be part of the problem, yeah. but I did a, a very contemporary remake of it. I just took the rough idea of of this really strangely nice guy who has an imaginary, maybe imaginary friend that's a six foot tall invisible rabbit, but I put him in modern, a very modern setting, and I changed around the family and the backstory, mm-hmm. and um, you know, while trying to hold on to the essence of it. And um, there, there's actually uh, some financiers, uh, a financing company right now that wants to make it, and. Um, it's, it's never fully died. The producers are still trying to get it made, sure. but you know, these things take forever. And I think people really are scared of taking on what, what became a classic 1950s movie with yeah. Jimmy Stewart. Um, you know, when I first wrote the script, it got a lot of excitement. You know, Steven Spielberg came on board. He was going to direct it. Yeah, there was a lot of, yeah, there was a lot of that. And so it got a lot of energy for a while. And then, you know, that, that, that fell apart as they do. And, you know, it just kept falling apart in different in different versions, but they're, they're still trying to make it. But in the meantime, once I had mm-hmm. sold it, once I had gotten the job and then once, you know, Spielberg had briefly come on board, it kind of put me on the map a little bit mm-hmm. and I was able to get work. Well, that's great. Um, let me, let me take another yeah. uh, step back again for a sure. second. Um, when you were writing this first spec screenplay, this yeah. adaptation of your own work, were you familiar with the format? What was it like right? Technically yeah. For you? yeah. Well, the way it had started was my books would get optioned and, I would get excited that someone was going to make a movie because they were all optioned in pretty big deals. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all optioned by major studios with either movie stars attached or big names attached. And I never understood why they never ended up hmm. getting made. You know, you know, Brad Pitt had uh, optioned my first novel and, and um, Tobey Maguire optioned my next novel. And he was Spider-Man at the time. So he was like That's a big funny. deal at Sony. And 
And then they would hire these screenwriters, and then the, the projects would just die, and I never understood it. And so I would ask to see the scripts, and my agents would get me the scripts, and I'd read the scripts, and I'd be like, well, if this is the big deal, like, I don't get it. Like, I could do this, right. you know? And uh, so I began, you know, playing around with the format, and I, you know, I bought Final Draft and, and started playing with it, and, and just... You know, I'd always felt I had I had an affinity for visual storytelling. So, mm. you know, that was actually one of the critiques of my novels was sometimes really? they felt like visual storytelling. So I... Really? Uh, How so? I don't know, just because I, I use a lot of sort of banter and dialogue, and they're very dialogue-heavy novels, which mm-hmm. I guess some people in the literary establishment feel that's more uh, conducive to screenwriting gotcha. than, you know, deeply dense prose that is a challenge to get through. And, <laughs> you know, so um, I don't know, it just... Uh, it just it came very naturally to me. Uh, and what was your relationship to film and TV, you know, growing just up? A, what, what just a huge, a, I, you know, I was East Coast. I, I had no connections to the industry. I didn't know anybody right. in the industry. But, but, but as a consumer, what was As a consumer, I was into? huge. I, I mean, I was, I, was, I was into pretty much everything, but I, I definitely gravitated towards action. Um, you know, I came of age in the 80s, which was the golden age of action movies, Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis. Um, you know, uh, I had earlier than that, it was Bruce Lee for me, Bruce Lee, Chuck mm. Norris, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, that whole evolution. Like I just loved all the action movies. And through that, I discovered kind of the straight to video format where, you know, all the B, all the B action movies with the, with the second rate uh-huh. actors. And, you know, I used to watch all of those and, and I, you know, I loved all that stuff. And I just, uh-huh. I, and, you know, I was a big, and I also was a big consumer of all the big Hollywood movies too. So, you know, pretty much all of it. And were you always a writer as well? Were you always a kid who wrote stories? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, certainly. When did it start to take shape. I mean, for in you? fourth grade or so, I, you know, I remember being assigned like a two-page science fiction assignment and ended up turning in like a twenty-page story. That was a total knockoff of like, <laughs> you know, Star Wars and Jason of Star Command and some some combination of that. But mm-hmm. you know, and and there was always something of a fanboy in me. Also, I loved all the science fiction stuff. I used to watch Star Trek with my grandmother. It was <laughs> it was uh, that was always a, a big part of it too. Uh, and when did it? it dawn on you that, you know, books, that writing is something that people do for a living? When did that become a Yeah, real it, that was hard for me, too late. Uh, later than I would have really? liked, let's say. I, you know, I grew up in a very upper middle class uh, Jewish neighborhood where people were becoming doctors and lawyers and accountants and financiers. And uh, I didn't know any writers. I didn't know any artists. Uh, really, I didn't know any artists at all. And um, everything else just felt like I'd never be successful at it. And... Um, you know, my family also had a business that I could go into, which I did for a while. So it what would have been, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a hard to explain. It's a, it's a manufacturing business, but, um, it was really easy to sort of not be ambitious about it. And it just felt like a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did go right after college. I, I went to NYU's grad school, uh, their, their writing program, their MFA program. Mm-hmm. And I put myself around other people who really were thinking mm-hmm. that they want this is what they wanted to do and I understood it was legitimate to to try to be that um, I just didn't know anybody who was doing it so there were just a number of happy accidents but you also you know? I mean you were consuming this entertainment I imagine you were yeah. probably something of a reader I was a huge reader so you know it, it that was real well I felt I could do it I just yeah. didn't know how you get there right. and but you know I read two kinds of books growing up always it was like the kind of books that made me aspire to it and the kind of books where I'm mm-hmm. like well, if this asshole can do it <laughs> sure. I can do it and uh, but then I just it was really blind I didn't know anybody in the business when I wrote my first novel mm-hmm. I just sent out like 50 query letters to 50 agents and this was before you could do it by email yeah. and um, 
you know, two of them agreed to represent me. I went with the one that I seemed to like better. And, you know, he got me my first book deal. And it just mm-hmm. went from there. And it, in retrospect, it seems really easy. But at the time, it felt very unscalable. And was that first manuscript your first novel? No, I skipped a part where I sent out a manuscript that nobody was interested in. Then oh, I really? then I wrote another book, and that became my well, first that's novel. Too. I yeah, mean, for someone who doesn't know the path, and and yeah. really there is no clear path. No, but you know, for someone who is a, a little lost there, yeah. getting not getting a response to the first manuscript you send out could be really disheartening. Oh, it was. So how do you how do I, you keep plugging away? How do you then write another novel? I, I think you know it's uh you know, it's like Rocky says, you know, I can't, I can't sing and dance. So there, there, I really didn't believe there was anything else I could be successful at. I did, mm. I did three things growing up. I did martial arts, I played piano, and I wrote. And I was pretty sure I wasn't going to make it as a martial artist professionally. <laughs> and I was not good enough to be a professional musician. And that left writing. And, and if I, I, real, I think it was the desperation of knowing... See, there's the desperation of becoming a successful writer because you're literally a starving artist. Mm -hmm. And then there's the desperation of being a kind of wealthy kid and knowing that if I don't do this, I'm going to be stuck here in this numb job, making a living. Like, you know, it's like, you know, wealth can be its own trap. And and so I felt like desperate to like go do my own thing, otherwise get sucked into the the easy road of going into a family business Hmm. and you know, making a good living, but being, right. you know, utterly unfulfilled. And is that what you were doing while you were writing these? I wrote my first pieces? three novels while I was working in a family business. Really? Yeah. Um, let's, I, I'm curious to hear about that. And I'm sure the listeners too, who are aspiring writers about just, again, the process, making the time to do it and, and yeah, it was, finding the discipline to do it. it. It was really, actually, I wish now I had the discipline I had back <laughs> then, but like, it, you know, I really think that for, for, for most artists, um, Desperation is a huge uh, incentive. Mm-hmm. Just the knowledge when you're in your 20s that if you don't somehow succeed at this, you're going to end up, no matter what else you're doing, doing something you're not happy or fulfilled doing, that desperation really pushes you. So um, my job required me uh, to fly back and forth to China quite a bit. And I used to spend those flights writing almost wow. nonstop. And also, I, I'd come into work every morning and I'd kind of like spend the first few hours before the call started really coming in just working on stuff and mm. and and I wrote a lot on weekends and and at night and and I'll, and looking back it's hard for me to actually remember when the hell I did it you know because I was also starting a family then I yeah. had kids I don't know I just I think it, you know that that desperation just pushed me to keep writing and then once it, once you publish one book and now you've got an agent and you've got a publisher it's easier because you know there are people waiting for it mm-hmm. even though my first book didn't really sell well at all it sold horribly actually really? um, I had a publisher I mean it sells well now but you know <laughs> at the time it, I don't think it sold really well at all mm-hmm. and um, but I had a publisher and I had an agent and I wrote right. another book and I wrote another book knowing okay I have the channel now I have a, right. I have my way in interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about, you know, how much of a conversation is it is, is sales is you know book sales? Yeah, when with your <laughs> publisher, with your agent. Like I feel like in TV, all you hear about are ratings and you well, know, are we going to get to make more and all of that? Well, the way it works, you know, and it works this way on any level, but certainly when you're first breaking in, is that you know. If your book doesn't sell, no one's running to publish your next one. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're lucky enough to have a two-book deal, they can, if that's at their option anyway. Mm-hmm. They don't have to publish it. So there's definitely a pressure on you to do some numbers. Um, 
And then when you get to a point where, you know, it took me a number of novels, but when it gets, you get to a point where, you know, you are, your, your books are on the bestseller list and you know you have this built-in readership, mm-hmm. um, you know, the pressure changes because you now know you're, you're going to get published and now it's more about um, how do I not totally shit the bed on this? Like, you know, I've got these readers, my, you know, my fifth book was a huge bestseller internationally. It was, you know, and, and then you write the next one, you're like, oh my God, this is not nearly as good as that. And, and you're not really being properly critical because you're just thinking about all the fanfare that accompanied that book and maybe what you're writing now is actually better doesn't mean it will sell better but um you know because i'm a writer and i'm jewish i'm like fucked on both levels where i'm just always gonna worry about this stuff and i think most writers i meet you know it's kind of like actors and everyone else who works in this kind of business where you just you remember too well the days where you couldn't get arrested and you just always feel like you're one bad move away from being back there so how do you, yeah. again, it's, it's a sort of similar question to starting out, but how do you fight against that to continue It's It's the writing? same thing. It's, it, well, first of all, you diversify. I'm, I, I work mm-hmm. in movies, TV, and books now. Um, but beyond that, it's also just the, uh, it's the same thing. That desperation feeds you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get complacent, you know, I mean, the, sh- the streets outside are littered with, with formerly hot screenwriters. I mean, <laughs> you just, you, you can't get complacent. You have to just keep, you know, trying to get better. Mm-hmm. Do you, I mean, you, you mentioned you're known for a certain type of book. Yeah. Um, do you, do you seek to, I can't imagine you seek to replicate something, but you have your interests. How do you look to change it up? How do you look to challenge yourself if you do challenge yourself? Yeah, I mean, but, well, that's what I'm doing now. I mean, I, I, you know, I run a television show that has, you know, nothing in common with the books I write mm-hmm. and, and. You know, some of the feature stuff I'm working on now has nothing in common with either. Um, one of the reasons I think it's been a little while since I've written a novel, I think my last novel came out uh, during the second season, maybe the second season of Banshee, my last mm-hmm. novel came out, I don't remember exactly, but uh, one of the reasons I haven't written another one aside from being a little busy is because I'm waiting to feel like I'm writing something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want to come at it with a fresh perspective. So I, I, I think you can't get too conscious about trying to change things up i think it's more just about you, you got to write the thing that excites you and mm-hmm. if it excites you you have to trust that you're going to deliver it in a way that excites other people and not worry i think if you're worrying too much about well where does this position me in the industry sure. you're going to just pick projects that you might not write to the best of your ability yeah i think that's great advice and yeah. and along the same lines um when you guys started out, you said, you know, you kind of came into Banshee with having, knowing what happened in the first season. You guys yeah. had talked about that. Um, what was what was the exciting thing for you in that story? In Banshee? Yeah. Um, Especially in the first <coughs> season, I'm curious about. It, it, to me, it was just, it was it was the idea of, of you know, taking a show that seems to have all the trappings of a conventional action sh- mm-hmm. uh, movie um, but but in it, telling a much more intimate story about identity and, and our character, Lucas Hood, uh, from season to season, what doesn't change about him is that he really is a man with no identity. Um, you know, he spent his formative years in prison. Before that, we give an indication that he had a fake identity as well. Mm-hmm. Then he comes and steals the sheriff's identity and like... He's never actually become a functional adult. He's never actually figured out who he is. And so to tell that story where he's it it is a cop adventure story and yet your cop's not really a cop you know your housewife's not really a housewife your criminal's not not really what he looks like either everyone everything and everyone on banshee used to be someone or something else and that's kind of 
that's sort of the underlying principle of the show. And I just love the idea of writing a show where because nothing is what it appears to be or nothing is or everything was something else once you could do the same thing with the show itself and the show we really have no rules on the show and we do we do episodes really out of left field that that are not nothing about our show is predictable which is what i really like that's cool um and and that is a way as you say to change things without changing things right. as you go along uh, and, and yeah. make it interesting to the writers make it exciting to the writers which obviously translates on the screen yeah um I'm curious. This is going to get very micro for a second, but okay, you know, that's, it's your audience, you know, <laughs> you know what they want to hear. That thematic element is interesting to me. Um, and is it something you're conscious of specifically when when writing the pilot? But even you know, on an episode by episode basis, is it something you're conscious of? Putting in scenes or putting into well, well, it's more about what we don't want to do when when. When we when we plan out a season, we plan it out fairly conventionally. But then as we write it, we're like, okay, now we have these two guys and they're going to go blow up the drug lab. But you know what? We've, we've seen people blow up drug labs before. What makes this different? How do we tell this story from a different angle? Or, you know, here is um, here's a fight we're going to do. But, you know... Like my one of my pet peeves in watching movies is car chases. I I tune out anytime there's a car chase because, uh, you know, thirty movies a year film car chases, which is like thousands of car chases we've all seen already. And there's just unless you find a way to make them new, they're just boring. And it's just five minutes of filler till we get to whatever the last frame of the car chase is. So if we're going to do a fight, a fight can be that way too. And if, if we want to make it interesting, what's going to make it interesting? How do we how do we use this fight to a uh, service the characters and b tell tell a story that makes it compelling to watch mm-hmm. as opposed to just you know yet another fight or it, pretty much any any significant scene we do the question we ask ourselves is how do we make sure that this is not going to be feel like something we've seen before mm-hmm. or something you um, can't see somewhere else I would imagine yeah um, right can you give an example of that can you think of a specific example from um well uh you know for instance uh you know uh, you know I mean there are a lot of them but but in uh in the beginning of our second season, we, we start the show with uh, yeah, Lucas and Job and Carrie robbing an armored car. Now, you, we've we've seen a lot of different versions of, of armored car heists, but you know, we just we, we just played around with it. And we decided that the whole heist happens at fifty five miles per hour, and that they're driving this pickup truck backwards, facing the the back doors of the van, and you know they're jumping back and forth, and and in so doing, we first of all we we created something that that we we really felt certainly had not been done on TV, and second of all, it gave us the opportunity with the jumping back and forth to also show the difference between Lucas's character and Job's character, and they've gotten most of the money bags, they've made it out safely, but there are still two in there. And the whole thing's going to hell, but Lucas jumps back in to get the last two anyway, even though it's all about to fall apart. And that got us a great Lucas Job moment, you know, or this past, the season that's on right now, episode mm-hmm. five, where we did a siege on, on the Banshee Sheriff's Department and they're locked in there for an entire episode. So that's really a tribute to Assault on Precinct 13. And there's nothing original about that setup, but we use that setup to throw all of the characters we've been with all yeah. season into different situations where they say very revealing things to each other. And suddenly the thing becomes like, you know, probably the most intimate episode we've ever done in the middle of a huge shootout. Yeah. And and so we just we just try to do things like that so that nothing feels everything has to feel new and fresh and not like something you've seen before. Well and by season three also you've these characters have these complex relationships that you get to play with. Yeah. And you know, to come to a head in a uh, 
episode like that is really exciting. Right. And the nice thing, the, the nice thing about writing TV as opposed to movies or, or even novels is that there's this dense layer of character work that you've built up over 30 episodes that is already present. So you don't have to build it organically anymore. It's already there. Now you get to just use it, mm-hmm. um, which is a really fulfilling part of writing TV that when, when you're coming, we're, you know, we're writing our fourth season now. We've got 30 episodes under our belt. It's like, it, yeah. it's like a great body of work to pull stuff out of and, and you know, you've laid a lot of the pipe already. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about how, how the, the process works. How you guys have a writer's room. We don't have a conventional writer's room. Okay. We, we, we've always done it differently. In the first season, by the time the show got picked up, they had kept ordering uh, back. Uh, what, uh, they kept ordering um, uh, additional episodes uh, for David and I to write. So that by the time we got, hmm. by the time the show got officially picked up, we'd written six of ten episodes oh, already. Wow. So then they said to us, you know, you've got a few months till production starts. Why don't you guys just write the whole season? <laughs> Which we stupidly agreed to. Um, and I say stupidly just because we didn't know how TV production works and we didn't know the constant rewriting that would be going on all through production. So we thought, okay, we'll write four more and then we'll sit back and enjoy shooting our show. (laughs) But that's not what happened because we began, we had to constantly be rewriting stuff as we were trying to write those last few episodes until finally to get episodes nine and 10 written, I had to literally sequester myself somewhere and write them because they were never going to wow. get written with all the work going on on the show. Yeah. Um, so for season two, we said we need to hire writers. Um, it's a process that I find really difficult because um, everyone sends you samples and there's no way of knowing. Well, the first thing you learn is never read anything that's been produced. Because mm-hmm. if, if I read your sample of a sh- of if you say I worked on, on uh, Sons of Anarchy season two and here's my sample... Right. You know, I'm pretty certain Kurt Sutter rewrote most of what's on that sample. So, That's, yeah, the nature of being a writer on staff. Yeah, so you need to look at stuff that hasn't been produced. Mm. One of the things I've learned is people are much better at writing their own stuff than writing my stuff. And so what happens is you read something and you're like, oh, this guy is witty and he's smart and he's edgy and, and he'll be such a good banshee writer. Then he writes my characters and like, oh, my God, that's just awful. How does he is he tone deaf? How does he not hear that none of them talk that way? Mm. And it's really, um, it's really challenging. And, you know, every year, you know, some of them work out and some of them have to be utterly rewritten. Mm-hmm. And there's no way of knowing until you get in there what's going to happen. But um, Well, do you read when, you know, when it is staffing time, do you read specs of existing shows? I know it's not. No, well, we don't. You know, don't that, that's anymore, not around but... anymore. I know that was a big thing way yeah. back when. No, uh, basically, I would love it if people would write specs of Banshee. Um, <laughs> there are legal problems with reading specs right. of Banshee, so we can't do it. Like, then we're going to get accused of stealing and, you know, right. all sorts of other things. But it's but really... I would imagine a Sons of Anarchy spec would show you that this person yeah. can write in someone else's voice. Maybe not right. necessarily the Banshee right. voice, but... I know. The spec scripts have tough. sort of disappeared. I, I always heard about them. By the time I got into the mm. industry, they were pretty much gone. You know, you you just do your best to to figure it out, and and I, I would say more than fifty percent of the time I've been wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that doesn't mean they can't still construct a really good script. It just sure. means I have to go in and rewrite all the dialogue sometimes, yeah. which you know I generally do to some extent anyway. I mean, Adam Targum, who works for me, has a has a pretty good ear for for what the show sounds like. So very often, 
he gets to a lot of it before I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just That's do a final right. polish pass. But I'm also a little bit of a control freak. So even if it's okay, even if it's written well, I may still tweak it just mm-hmm. because I don't think Job would sound exactly like that. And, you know, I, and you know, I, it. I mean, these, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of absolute knowledge. It's, yeah. it's, you know, kind of like whether I'm wrong or right, I'm probably <laughs> right because they're right. my characters, but you know, That's funny. Um, but yeah, so that, that it's a painful process because, you know, you want people to hand in scripts that you feel that's it. And of course, of course. it's not. And then you got to sit down and spend yeah. hours. And then, of course, the other side of it is, you know, you could really rewrite a script from beginning to end and put your heart and soul into it. But when it shows up on screen, it's still going to be credited to the writer who wrote the first draft and not you. Sure. And then it's sort of painful, like, <laughs> God, that's all my words and I'm not getting credited. But, you know, it's your show, so you get credited exactly. for the overall and, yeah, that's content. That's part of the job of the show. Anyway, and, and one of the wisest things that, that another TV writer once said to me is you, you never arbitrate down. Um, and the idea is just if it's your yeah. show, you're going to get credit for it and don't ever – even if they don't deserve it, don't ever take credit away from a staffing writer. And, you know, it's and, a healthy and, attitude to yeah, have. Yeah, it's the right really – even if it, sometimes it doesn't work out for you, the truth is it's yeah. the right attitude to have across the board. Absolutely. How? Yeah. Um, so this is the first show you've run. Yes. How, this must have been an unbelievable crash course in that first season, not just learning how much rewriting goes on, but – with all of it, too. yeah, all of it, yeah. No, it, it's it, it's an amazing uh, it, it's an amazing bit of experience, and I think you take it with you. Um, you know, they knew coming in, we didn't know what we were doing, mm-hmm. and so you know, we hired a producing director, um, you know, Greg Utanis, who had twenty years of right. directing television under his belt, and he really built the show. He really put together the infrastructure, mm-hmm. hired all the staff, and he also you know spent his, uh, a lot of time kind of pushing us and like explaining, you know, this is what needs to happen. And, and, you know, this is how it works. Um, he couldn't always take the time to explain that cause you're moving so quickly. Okay. Um, and so it took us a while. I think it took us the first season to sort of find our stride and, yeah, you know, sense. learn how to collaborate together because his first job as mandated to him by Cinemax was get the damn show made. <laughs> and he couldn't always wait for, you know, right. us to catch up and figure out what was going on. And, you know, at the same time, we, you know, we needed to learn it. And, and you know, it took a little time, but, you know, you have to be a quick study and you have to be a really fast, responsive writer because you could find out on Tuesday that the set you had on Thursday isn't going to work out and now you have to rewrite the scene. I mean, you just have to be able to write quickly. Yeah. Was that um, the biggest lesson for you in that first season? No, I think I think the biggest lesson was actually uh, learning practically what works and what doesn't work on screen, yeah. what lands, what doesn't land. What were some where of you like think? <laughs> well, well, like big things are, for instance, you know, writing to budget, which is something you know you never have to do when you write books, and you, even when you write screenplays, you don't have to do that until you start getting into production drafts. Yeah. But um, writing to budget on a TV show is really important, and you learn. I thought, okay, let's limit those explosions because I bet those are really expensive. And it turns out, you know what the most expensive thing we can do is? Is like have two people have a conversation in a moving car. <laughs> like that's really expensive. We got to get a process trailer. We're going right. to lose half a day on it. And it's like, and then you learn. I thought that would be like the easy thing to shoot. Whereas an explosion, no problem. You know, right. we could do that. We could do it in post. We could do a million other <laughs> things. And, you know, learning all those little tricks about where the savings are, using using your standing sets instead of continually writing new sets, um, mm-hmm. you know, all the ways that to keep your story alive and within budget is i think the biggest lesson you oh, learn yeah uh, and how do you you know th- that can also be very limiting so how do you start to push out from that yeah, how do you uh, find the it, angles it, that you i actually enjoy in? it I, I find that to be a fun part of the puzzle because the trick is how do we tell the same story without doing that 
And you really learn it's the same way when you do Twitter and you got to keep it to the 140 yeah. characters. I write it first. Oh, that's 160 characters. <laughs> Where are the expendable words? Right. It's the same thing. It forces you to really look at your script and say, okay, what's necessary? What's extra? And if it is necessary, how do I get around the fact that we can't afford the helicopter? And like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's, it's, it's a great mental exercise and you're doing it with a team. You're not doing it alone. You've got line producers and ADs and directors. And, but I, I find like it prepares you like, Every, every feature job I've done since we started the show uh, is greatly informed by the fact that I understand production in a way I never did till, till we were doing Banshee. Yeah. Um, so um, we were talking about how the production lays out. So not counting the first season, right. uh, do you come into, because you guys had sort of had that story yeah. uh, and were able to discover it on your own since you, you two wrote all the episodes, <laughs> yeah. um, coming into seasons two, three, and beyond, yeah. Do you have tent poles? Do you convene? A yeah, how does, how does yeah, we, it come both. Uh, what 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 happens is um, for the last two seasons, uh, the last yeah, the last the last two seasons, uh, you know, Greg and I will will start talking towards the end of a season and start saying, well, mm-hmm. you know, here's where it's going, and here are the things we'd love to do, and he'll throw some ideas at me, I'll throw some ideas at him, and. I'll have some basic ideas. And then Adam Targum, who, who's an exec producer on the show now, um, who's somebody who started in our writer's room and, and who mm-hmm. I felt really confident That's understood right. the show. And, and, and he had more production experience than I did, actually, which helped. Um, you know, Adam and I will talk about a lot of that stuff through him. We'll come up with just a really basic map. Here's, here's what season three is going to be about. Mm-hmm. Then we'll hire writers. And we do a really fast writer's room. We actually do two weeks. We break for a month and we do another two weeks. Oh, wow. um, and in those first two weeks, we literally start breaking out 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we start talking about all the characters and what they need and what we want to see from them in the season. Um, so the first few days are spent on all the characters just talking. Then we begin breaking out episodes. And then what we did this year is by the end of those two weeks, we've got really rough outlines on the episodes. How rough? And then, that, what does that look it's like? It's like a list of all the scenes in each episode. Like picture a bunch of picture like so picture like twenty file cards. Well, a lot of it's going to be wrong. Sure, but about twenty. But it has a shape. Yeah, about tw- every episode has a shape. Yeah, about and then what happens is. We'll say, okay, we're going to reconvene in a month. There's four of us. Let's each go write an episode hmm. and then look at all the episodes, see where things are landing, see what we have to do. Then we reconvene again. And um, I spend some time noting all the episodes just to calibrate the writers a little more. Mm-hmm. And then we just talk through this, the same eight episodes again, wow. see what's working, what's not. And now we're in the period where we finish that and we go off and we're writing the second half of the season. But... Um, this year we're doing something we've never done before, which is we're keeping the writers on staff all through the season. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have – uh, in the past it's always just been Adam and me. And, right. and now we'll have two other writers who will be on hand to continue the rewrites and receive network notes and implement them. And hopefully right. that will make life a little bit smoother. Yeah. And also to have the brain trust around yeah. for the whole season. Because one of the problems over the course of four seasons was I was the only constant Mm-hmm. And I, if I'm your brain trust, you're in trouble because <laughs> I can't remember episode to episode sure. what we do, let alone see, see, to have other people who were there from inception of the season and understand what the goals were and, you know, can help track the story is very helpful. That's great. And where do you guys shoot? We, for the past three years, we've shot in North Carolina and this coming season we're shooting in Pittsburgh. We've actually moved because oh, no uh, the tax rebate disappeared from North Carolina. <laughs> and so we moved to Pittsburgh. And will you, are you usually on set? Uh, not as much as I used to be. Uh, Adam is on set. Okay. Uh, all the time. Uh, and will these new writers be sent to These set? new writers will be on set. And, and I'll be on set, you know, quite a bit. I'm also going to direct an episode this year, so I'll be down there nice. for, for a while there. 
Um, Pittsburgh's a little easier for me than North Carolina. I live in New York, and uh, so I'll probably get to set a bit more. I like to be there as much as I can. Um, uh, is there, uh, you know, you, you say you guys are writing season four now. Yeah. Um, is it as exciting as it was at the beginning? Yeah, it's always exciting to sort of re, you know, come back to a world that you've kept in existence for three years and say, yeah. now we get to continue the adventure. Yeah. Um, so how do you find, again, new new angles, new relationships, new things to play? Because, you know, four seasons in, you have yeah. done 30 episodes. There's a lot of ground cover. Yeah. Um, strangely enough, moving to Pittsburgh helped because we used the opportunity of moving to also kind of reboot in a way. Mm-hmm. And uh but also we've always, you know, I've always had a pretty strong idea of where the show ends. And so we're just getting closer and closer to that point. Hmm. So, um, no, it's it's always exciting when it starts to take shape. And, you know, it's odd now because I'm reading scripts for season four while season three is actually airing mm-hmm. on TV every Friday night. And it, it's really odd when you spend your whole week immersed in season four and then you watch season three and they sort of merge together in your mind and you forget what is the stuff we're <laughs> writing, what's the stuff that's on TV, and, and it gets very complicated. Yeah. But it also helps because, you know, this season three has been our most, uh, you know, our highest rated season, and we've hit some of our biggest numbers. And I know, with the, you know, the finale is coming up this Friday, and, you know, we're expecting, you know, huge response from that. And it kind of sometimes reminds you of things you did that mm-hmm. you need to keep doing and things you've already done that you don't need to do again. But mm-hmm. what, have, I'm curious, what are some of those things? Well, just like, you know, um, you, you really, when you write so many scenes, look, we, we have a handful of sets, we have, we have a handful of characters, and it's very easy to accidentally put them in the same positions again mm-hmm. um, or to have the same conversation again. Sure. Um, and, and so you need to sometimes remember, you know, this sounds a lot like a conversation they had in season three. So they need to have moved beyond this already. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very embarrassing, even though it happens sometimes where the actor comes up to you a day before you <laughs> shoot and says, this sounds a lot like something I said in season two. And then, you know, you realize, you know what, you're right. And, you know, it's a, uh, so, you know, it's always helpful to be looking at what you just did and, and make, you know, it keeps you honest. Mm-hmm. And are you yeah. also seeing, as you say, the things you did right? the things that really work. Can you look yeah. at past seasons and say that's that's something that works? Yeah, How do but, we find that but that's a double-edged sword because what you end up almost doing is it almost sounds like you're trying to copy your own season. Mm. And, yeah. and I'd rather not think that way. Like, I really try to go into it saying season three was about this and we tried to do X, Y, and Z. And season four, we don't want to do any of that. We mm. want to do this. And, sure. you know, but of course, obviously there are certain staples of the show that we want to try to make sure that, you know, things that the fans have come to expect mm-hmm. and, and appreciate that we want to make sure we keep doing. Mm-hmm. So you can't completely reinvent yourselves, but but you want to, you don't want to just keep making the right. same season. That makes sense. So, uh, yeah. What is the relationship? What's the collaboration like with the actors and with the, with the uh, Cinemax? Um, Cinemax is great, first of all, because we were their first show and we're the flagship show and and we've been really successful there, um, which is in part because of, you know, their nurturing and, and, and they, uh, they're really good about kind of giving us our space while at the same time they are guardians of the show along with us. I think they all feel a certain, um, connection to the show because it was the show that put Cinemax on the map for original programming. So... Um, they're really good about letting us kind of create the blueprints. They, you, what you never get from Cinemax, which, which I hear from friends of mine on other shows and at other networks you do get, what you never get is we want to see X, Y, and Z. 
Mm-hmm. You never get that. You never get. We don't. You know. Let's see more of this actor. Let's. You, we never. We never get any creative mandates. We do get. We do get creative input, mm-hmm. but we never get mandates. And um, I, I don't know. It, it, it's very scalable right now. I mean, the whole. You know, we have an executive and we have the head of Cinemax, and you know, and that's it. And HBO right. kind of lets us. Lets them gives them a certain level of autonomy, mm-hmm. so we don't get notes from HBO. And right. uh, as long as the ratings are there, HBO is very happy with us. Mm-hmm. And so it's really Cinemax is a very scalable network right now because they're so successful now. Because some of the shows they've they've put on are so yeah. you know are so upping the game with the Nick and now the uh, now Quarry coming. Um, and some of the other shows, I think ultimately they are going to become bigger. But I'm enjoying being there in their infancy when yeah. when when they're really sort of fun and easy to work with, and, and there isn't there isn't any real bureaucracy to to cut through. And do you feel? Let me uh, along those same yeah. same lines. Do you feel like you're getting the chance to be? ambitious with this show? Yeah, they, they want anywhere. us to be. Um, well, I don't think this show would have gotten on anywhere else. At, right. at the time this show got on, HBO, it was at HBO. HBO wasn't going to put it on. Um, it was the perfect time for the show and it was the perfect way to launch Cinemax. I think even today with what Cinemax is doing, if we came to Cinemax today, I'm not sure the show would get on. Like, everything is of, of, of its moment, yeah. you know? Um, but, you know, they push us to be very ambitious and and they do not do the thing where they say, well, season three has been really successful, so try to stay within that same formula. Right. When I told them what I wanted to do for season four, they were they were incredibly supportive of That's that. Um, and then the actors, you know, the actors yeah. feel like they are, you know, proprietors of their characters. Sure. And uh, for better or worse, they, <laughs> they, they will let you know what they feel. Yeah. Um, but it's a very tight-knit group. I think a, a lot of shows that shoot on location become that way because everyone lives yeah. together and... There's a real sense of family, and we get together quite a bit in the off season. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know one of the things I always look back to is is look look forward to is is uh, coming back for a new season with all the actors and and everybody. It's like coming back to school, you know, everybody <laughs> seeing each other and telling what they did on their summer vacation. Yeah. Did you find uh, what what was the experience like for you? writing for actors because you've written screenplays but they hadn't been yeah produced, oh, right? oh that's a great thing that that's when it changes like the way we originally originally conceived of lucas hood was very different than the character who's on no, tv now because we thought he was a much more of a sort of you know fast talking devilish kind yeah. of you know the models we used were sort of mel gibson in the first lethal weapon movie mm-hmm. things like that guys who were fast talking kind of you know reckless very debonair and um, and then we loved Ant, and but the way Ant understood the character was a guy who feels the weight of of all the things he's done and all the things that have been done to him, and Ant brought this tremendous gravity to the role. And you know, by the time I was writing, once we started production, the way the way I wrote to to Lucas was really Ant's way, which was many fewer words, hmm. um, much more gravity, um, and the and the wit is there, but the wit is is a quiet wit because this is a guy who's really suffering from from his choices. Um, and so, you know, the actors really inform the way you write it. I mean, yeah. I had a very good idea of of what Job sounded like, but then Hoon Lee came along and kind of invented what he sounded like, and and it changed for me. That's very. Right. Um, so by the time once you've once you've worked with them, you can't ever do anything but write <laughs> in their voices. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and have you had a chance in these four years of telling this story to tell other stories? 
You know, well, are yeah. you able to? You, yeah, you've I've, written, I've written some some and... some features which are in various stages of production. Mm-hmm. I adapted one of my books. This is where I leave you, which came out. Uh, oh, that's right. Uh, earlier this year, and yeah. and you know, I'm I'm like I'm working on a science fiction script now for one studio, and I just rewrote a, actually a musical, a historical musical oh, for wow. another studio. And how yeah, is it there's... shifting gears for you? Uh, that, I, I don't find that hard at all. I actually find that it's a relief. Yeah. Um, it, it's if I had to sit and just write Banshee all day every day, you know, the same reason I can't sit and write a book all day every day. You need right. to just diversify yourself creatively to uh, to to be able to put in a good long day of work. Yeah. Do you give yourself? Uh, do you set goals for the day, for the week, for that kind of thing? Well, for better or worse, I'm at a point right now where the the, the timing sets the goals for me. I just have right. to work on whatever's hottest. If they're waiting for a script, that's what has right. to happen. If they're waiting for a treatment somewhere else, that's what has to happen. Uh, the deadlines pretty much set the goals for yeah, me now. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so the finale is on Friday. Yes, this, this Friday. Friday. It is epic. It's really, <laughs> I think, I think honestly this season has been the most exciting season we've done. But a lot of people thought episode eight was our finale because that felt like such a finale sure. uh, when we, we, we killed off our major baddie, Chayton. But uh, no, uh, what, what happens this Friday night is, is, uh, is really going to, it changes Banshee forever what happens. Uh, it just crazy stuff is cool. going to happen this Were Friday Were there, was it, a lot of these, bi- you, know, you guys made big choices. Yeah. In- Almost every other episode, especially this season. Yeah. Were there tough choices? Always. I mean, it's what always was the conversation well, like around these <laughs> I assume you're talking about killing actors or killing characters. Yeah. We, we tend not to kill too many actors, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's always I mean, a big there's, potential there's, game changer. Yeah, um, but our feeling has been from the beginning that that 